Thank you for joining us for the Military Family Research Institute podcast. I am your host, Sadie Urquitz. Today we welcome two MFRI Advisory Council members, Will Boss and Barbara Thompson. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Tell our listeners about yourselves and what drew you to the military and veteran family space. Well, for me, uh, I've been part of the military for 27 years, uh, eight years of active duty. I've been in the Navy Reserve for 19 years. Uh, my dad was in the military, uh, come from a military family, um, and I started young. I was a sea cadet when I was 13 years old and started wearing the uniform. Uh, so it's something that I've been passionate about for years and really uh, find it rewarding to be associated with the MFRI and the good work that you're doing. Barbara? Um, well, I'm the daughter of a World War II vet who served in the Navy and um, definitely brought his experience into our family life. But my first professional connection with military families started when I was living in Madrid, Spain, and I worked as a translator at the installation hospital, but eventually was hired as the Child Development Center director, which matched my education and passion after um, many stepping stones to get to that point. But it better prepared me to take on a very complex job. And, and at that point, I realized I was very passionate about military children and working in, in, this, in the child development arena to improve their lives. Barbara, you've worked in this space for over 40 years now. Can you explain how the needs of military and veteran families has changed over the span of your career? And just as a recent example, maybe before and after 9-11. Sure. Um, first of all, military families face the same day-to-day -day challenges every family encounters, whether that's illness, death of a family member, divorce, worries about your children's success in school, financial setbacks, career concerns, all of those things are, are already inherent in the military family. But we must overlay the normal day-to-day -day challenges with those inherent with the military life cycle, which is constant relocation, spouse employment challenges, school transition challenges, and the impact of separation on the family Prior to 9-11, we had short-term conflicts with deployment that put our service members into harm's way, but nothing like the scale and intensity of this ongoing, now over 17 years of military involvement in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, and really many other places around the globe. And the impact on family readiness, resilience, and well-being has been studied, but more research is needed. And so that has been a major change that we do know a lot more about the impact of the military life cycle on military families. How do we approach situations differently now than maybe we have over the last five, 10, or 20 years? Well, one dramatic change that has made the delivery of family support evolve over the years is technology and a better understanding of how different generations want to receive information and support. We also have a deeper respect for the behavioral health fragility of every family member regardless of their age. The family support professionals at DOD work diligently to, pre to prevent an exacerbation of behavioral health issues through their non-medical counseling program. So that was an innovative approach to working with uh, military families in conjunction with our colleagues in the mental health sphere. When it comes to military children, which I know that is a passion for you, what's the impact of these changes? So at every developmental stage of a child's life, um, children are dealing with long-term separations from a very important 
figure, a very important critical adult in their lives. And we know there's the risks that are involved with that, both from the civilian sector as well as the military sector. So one of the one of the takeaways is how important it is to shore up the non-deployed parent or guardian with the support they need um, to be responsive to their children. So it's it's important for us to take care of that stay-at-home parent in order for them to be able to take care of their children. Veterans and their families, they also live with unique challenges. Although they might not be actively serving, veterans, I think, they'll always serve. At MFRI, one of the initiatives we have is for our veterans to be seen as assets in their community, their place of employment, or their other affiliated organizations they might be part of. Will, can you please speak to veterans being seen as assets? Oh, absolutely. In addition to being in the Navy Reserve, my civilian job is a leader in the talent acquisition space for Comcast NBC Universal. And so as part of that, uh, we're very focused on bringing veteran talent into our organization. And we've seen firsthand the kind of difference that they can make. But I think the narrative's shifting a little bit in terms of the assets that they bring. So traditionally, when someone's asked that question, you'll talk about veterans being great at teamwork, leadership, as well as followership. They'll have stamina, they're punctual, um, all those sort of attributes. Um, but today, as we're looking forward to how things are changing in the digital age, we're looking at different skills, um, perhaps the ability of the military to upskill and learn new skills. When you come into the military, you probably have no experience in the discipline that you're eventually going to perform within the service. So you're showing that learning agility and the ability to learn over time. Education is very important uh, in a military career, uh, and so that uh, focus on continuous learning, we think, is an attribute as well. Plus, a lot of military learning is experiential. It's maybe not learned in the classroom. It's learned out in the field or on the ship or forward deployed. Um, and we're seeing that in corporations. That's the effective way that people can learn day to day, and it becomes part of the experience and being embedded in the work. And so we think uh, a comfort and fluidity with that type of learning is gonna be an asset. Lastly, companies are thinking about how they make their employees robot-proof. How do we ensure that they are bringing the skills in uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning? The military is grappling with those same things and embedding a lot of those technologies in their operations. And so we think that comfort with technology and that recognition that um, the human factors are going to be critical in the future. The military is a great training ground for that. And then, of course, the workforce is becoming more diverse. Military is an extremely diverse organization, so we're bringing in people that have comfort with diversity and inclusion and working with different generations uh, and in demanding conditions. Uh, I think all of those um, contribute to the value that veterans are seen as assets. We're starting to see it as companies continue their recruiting um, focus. We at Comcast are focused on hiring 21,000 veterans by 2021. Uh, we're also seeing things like political parties actively recruiting veterans uh, to run for office. So they're recognizing those skills and abilities uh, that veterans bring as well. We look at veterans in the workplace, but what about for spouses? Oftentimes spouses' positions and their careers will take a back seat for lack of a better term. Can you talk about that please? I can. I, you know, we've certainly seen uh, progress in overall veteran unemployment rates uh, becoming reduced. In many instances, they're lower than the population at large. This hasn't always been the case. And it's been the result of a lot of focused efforts by a lot of organizations over the years. But one area that still is a challenge is military spouse employment. And I think it's an area that we uh, should continue to focus on and talk about. 
So what advice would I have for military spouses? You know, one, I think look at the kind of companies that are out there that are actively seeking military spouses. Do they offer job portability? Do they offer work from home? Do they have benefits um, around severance or transition uh, if a family member is PCS? So you know, really think judiciously about the kind of companies out there that are making a difference. Second, maybe you're not able to make a particular career work during one tour of duty or another. So maybe it's an opportunity to invest in skill building or education. There's so many different options online and non-traditional learning. Um, the ability to gain stackable credentials doesn't always have to be degrees. It can be a new skill, uh, but use that time to make yourself more competitive or learn something new. Um, volunteer activity is a part of day-to-day -day military life in my experience. Um, and so how do you tie your volunteer activity to your career narrative? How do you make it fit? How do you show that it's part of uh, a broader set of interests and that you're continuing to build those skills? And then also maybe thought leadership. So with LinkedIn, with things like task and purpose, talking about the military community out there, lots of opportunities to get online and really become a thought leader and put your brand out there. Uh, as you market yourself more, as you have more insights and you're able to cultivate these contacts, they'll be valuable to you, maybe not even just today, uh, but for the future when you're in a different situation. My final piece of advice is top performers always get more support. If you're awesome, employers are really going to think about how they keep you. And policies are easy to make exceptions for in many cases when somebody's really adding value and they're an outstanding employee. So I think the better you perform, the more motivated you are, the more options you're going to have. I appreciate you showing that there's a wide margin of possibility out there. Barbara, do you have anything to add to that? Sure, I think one, um, we know that spouse satisfaction is a critical component of retention for the military. So emphasis is being placed on supporting military spouses in their career opportunities um, and education because as Will was saying, it's, it's a, a lot of different components that make you marketable in, in, in today's economy. So the Spouse Education and Career Opportunities Program is available to military spouses and surviving spouses um, with education and career planning. So we have certified career counselors in the Military One Source Spouse Career Center, and they provide education and career counseling services to military spouses according to the, the, the spouse life cycle, if you will. So career exploration, education and training and licensing, employment readiness, and career connections. And uh, it's really important so that there are different stages and you need to know where you are in, in those different stages, where you are located too, like Will was saying, depending on your PCS move, what you need to be doing and what you need to be shoring up. But it's really important that there's a certain, there's a certain um, eligibility ca category for the My Career Advancement Account scholarships uh, to give a spouse uh, $4,000 to pursue an AA or a licensing uh, a licensing uh, certification. That's really important because as military spouses move, licensing becomes a major issue. Uh, as they move, they may need to re redo it at the next duty station because it's a different state requirements, and that can be a really a, an important benefit to them. And then the Military Spouse Employment Partnership is a group of um, unbelievably dedicated um, businesses and organizations that are very interested in hiring, retaining, and promoting military spouses in their career endeavors. Much of what we talked about so far was ongoing before the 9-11 attacks, and it continues to be ongoing. 
Barbara, you were actually at the Pentagon during the attacks. Would you be comfortable sharing the experience and how this tragedy may have added a lens that you are now looking through for maybe the first time at that point? Um, yes, it was a terrifying event, and um, I never thought I would see F-16s patrolling our airspace when I was living in the United States versus being overseas. The immediate response was the next day, my office, um, in conjunction with other uh, people in, at the Office of the Secretary of Defense, stood up the Pentagon Family Assistance Center. And it was a central hub of where the families of the victims could go to receive the support and information they needed to make decisions about their loved ones. Um, my particular responsibility was setting up and working in a safe haven, which was called the Kids Place, and it was there for children uh, while their their family members were either giving DNA samples or finding financial resources or whatever the, the challenge they were facing. Um, and it really did become a, a safe haven, not only for the children, but for the um, the workers who were there and the family members. They knew that this was a place where they could decompress, if you will. And the one um, takeaway that I learned very quickly is working with, um, we had art therapists and psychologists and different mental health um, providers at our beck and call if needed. And I realized at that point in time it was something that we really needed to provide um, our children in our child development centers, in our youth centers, in our school situations. And that was basically the um, genesis of the child and, and youth behavioral health specialist with the Military Family Life Counselor Program. And we continue to this day to deploy uh, mental health clinicians in a non-clinical way. They're, they're non-medical um, counselors in, in, our, in our programs to support the staff, the parents, and the children as they deal with the challenges of, of the military life cycle. Given your experience and the role that you had, what are some thoughts um, if a large-scale deployment would happen again? And this is in terms of military and veteran families. Um, I would say we must not think of if, but when and what, and be prepared. And I, and I have to say it was a real privilege to work on um, my chapter in the battle plan because it gave me an opportunity to reflect on um, September 11th, 2001 until February 2017, um, when I retired of what we were challenged with, what we, um, what we developed, what we launched, what we deployed to ensure that we could support families uh, in the best way possible uh, as they were dealing with some major, major crises in their lives. And um, to this day, we have some institutionalized programs that have, I think, made um, an, an, a positive impact on military families. And as we work with our transition folks, as military members transition from the military life to now a post-civilian life as a veteran, we, we need to work more closely with our comrades in the VA to make sure that it's a seamless transition. Well, what are your thoughts? Uh, so when we think about large-scale deployments, I think that can mean a couple of different things. We're starting to build up our overseas capabilities again, sending troops to Europe, uh, sending more troops to Asia, 
many cases those are accompanied tours, so those families are actually closer and more forward deployed themselves. It may not be as expeditionary as things are today. Yet we're also continuing to send forces to unaccompanied tours around the world. And so really, it, several questions in terms of is the family unit there uh, or are they somewhere out of the zone? But then in today's day and age, there's immediate communications. And so that connection between the service member and the family, even if they're forward deployed in um, very demanding circumstances, there's still that immediate ability to be in communication. And that presents opportunity. It's great to feel like you're not missing out, but also challenges because anything that's happening in that home or happening to that military member is immediately in that family dialogue. That can affect readiness and morale. Uh, and it's a pretty significant consideration. I think any future large-scale deployment is gonna to continue to rely on the Guard and Reserve, and those present unique challenges in supporting those family members. They may not be located near a military base, they may not be as familiar with the resources that the military offer. The children are in schools where maybe they're the only one whose parent is far deployed, so there isn't that sense of um, understanding. Uh, and so I think uh, anything we can do to make that um, more support for those reserve families is going to be critical. I think there's more gender balance coming to the military. Women are now in forward deployed combat roles. They're on submarines. They're uh, joining the infantry. Uh, I think that changes the dynamic in terms of who are the families that are supporting those new generation of warriors. And then I would say, you know, think about the power of social media today. If you're a family member and you have a member of the military who's forward deployed in harm's way, what are you saying on social media? And of course you want to talk about your concerns and you want to talk about that impact, but then you also have an obligation maybe to stay positive. What kind of message are you uh, telling people in terms of how your family is rallying to support that? Um, it's a challenge with enlistments and uh, keeping our military at full strength with the all-volunteer force. And I think you have an obligation to make sure that you're giving the full story um, and that you're thinking that People are looking at your words, so share your pride as well as your concerns. For additional information or ways to support military and veteran families, please visit mfri.purdue.edu.